Good morning, guys. We are excited to be back here with you guys. We're excited to reconnect. Uh, some of you haven't seen for two years, some for five years, and uh, we're excited to be back here. And I'm excited to spend some time with you in God's Word this morning. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to spend two minutes and say thank you. Thank you to the church, to the leadership of the church, to the families in the church for you guys' support over the last five years. Um, as a sending church, you know, we felt nothing but your generosity, your love, your encouragement, your support. That's meant a lot to us uh, every day, and especially those days where we felt like we were far from home and we were struggling to get through. So we thank you guys for that. We felt no, uh, we never felt like we were there alone. We never felt <clears throat> any drama or any conflict or any half-heartedness from the church, but we really felt like you guys were our partners in what God is doing there. So thank you for letting us be a, your missionaries and your servants in that part of the world. And just thank you for letting us be a part of God's work in Athens. We were able to see some great things. God's continuing to do great things in Athens. Uh, we, if you remember, we worked with the immigrant and refugee population, almost all Muslims that are coming into Greece, um, seeking to get to Western Europe and find a better life. But many of them are stuck there in Greece. And we've seen God do great things. We've seen God bring many refugees to faith in Christ. We've seen God transform lives and transform families. And... I honestly believe we've seen God, we're seeing God change nations by the power of the gospel. Uh, you know, Athens right now is the, it's the shame of Europe, it's an embarrassment to the EU, and yet somehow, uh, in God's economy, I think it's doing something special right now that isn't happening in the other places. Uh, God is using this place uh, to reach the lost with the gospel. And so we pray uh, and ask you guys to continue to pray for the ministry there, pray for those who come to Christ for their boldness in the faith, for their growth in their walk with Christ. Um, in, the, in the midst of persecution, even there in Europe, there's quite a bit of persecution when they come to Christ. So pray for them and their strength and their growth, their witness. Pray that God would continue to raise up uh, Afghans and Iranians and Iraqis and Arabs and North Africans that have a heart, uh, that, that come to accept Jesus and have a heart to go back to their own people and share the gospel back in Afghanistan or, and these other nations. We've seen God doing that, and we continue to pray for more of those uh, with an apostolic heart to be missionaries back to their own people. So continue to pray with us for God to raise up those type of uh, believers there. And, and thirdly, we just ask that you continue to pray for the countries um, that we're dealing with. Uh, pray for Greece. Obviously, there's a lot of need uh, there among the Greek people. Pray for the Greek churches. But also continue to pray for Af these nations I mentioned, Afghanistan and Iran and Sudan and Somalia. Uh, I'm, my prayer is that my girls, our daughters, will, won't know the same nations that we know today. That, that Christ will no longer be a foreign uh, idea or a foreign savior in those places. But, uh, you know... It, melts my heart to see in, our, in the youth department of, of our outreach, we'd have 20 or 30 kids every time we had a program that would hear the gospel. And we've had some of them respond. We've had a lot of them, at the very least, know that Christians love them, that Christians aren't the enemy and uh, aren't, as a, aren't opposed uh, to the message of Christ in the ways that maybe their fathers or their grandfathers were. So we are thankful for that, and as you guys continue to pray for that. We've been able to see some great things, and I'm excited to share some more of the stories with you. Come to Sunday school, and we'll talk through, answer the questions, and talk through some more uh, specific stories. But one of the things that really uh, impacted me and continues to impact me as I reflect on our five years there is what God has done in our lives and what God has done in my heart. 
you know, through what we've experienced in Athens, through the good and the bad, through the refugees and the busyness and the problems of the city right now, through our relationships in the church and the team, all of those things God has used uh, in our lives and in my life specifically to, to reawaken me to the all-surpassing power and beauty and riches of the gospel. And, of course, when I went to the mission field, I, I was a Christian. I, was lo- I loved God. I f- tried to walk in Christ. Uh, but I think it was too easy for me to take the gospel for granted. And it was too easy for me to make secondary issues, you know, to argue about those and, and to make those primary things. Um, it was too easy for me to try to serve on my own strength. And by God's grace, though, this time in Athens has served as a chance to, to really allow his love in Christ Jesus, the, the all-surpassing beauty and riches of the gospel to become a refrain in my life and in my ministry. And it was a, a much-needed refrain, a life-changing refrain, actually. And I don't use that lightly. I don't use that just as a turn of phrase. I mean a life-changing refrain and a ministry-shaping refrain. So we're thankful for that. And I want to I camp out on that idea today, the riches of the gospel. In reality, that's my prayer for this church. Uh, you guys have been an amazing sending church for us. And I, our prayer is that you continue to be a sending church for a next generation of missionaries and others that God is raising up among you. Um, but not only that. Not only that you would continue to partner in gospel works around the world, but that in your own lives, your strength would come from the gospel. That your hope would be anchored in the gospel. That your deepest treasure would be the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that your legacy would be the gospel. The legacy that you pass down to your children and your grandchildren. The legacy that you leave in your neighborhood and at your work. Uh, it wouldn't be about you know, a raving Cardinals fan. It wouldn't be about you know, all these other things about your personality or your political opinions. But that you loved and were compelled to serve by Jesus Christ. And so that's our prayer for you. And I, I pray also that you guys just... You know, as a, as a reminder and as a refresher as, as we go into the message, uh, the gospel isn't just something for non-Christians to accept to begin following Jesus. The gospel is, is something for Christians too. Paul talks it throughout most of his letters, if you look in the New Testament, his desire to go to the church, believers in Christ, to go to the church and to preach the gospel for their encouragement, for their growth, for their development. Uh, the gospel is the fuel that propels us on in following Christ. It's the truth that reminds us and humbles us, uh, that brings us back uh, in a, in, to a place of uh, need before God. And that hunger and that need is a place that we all need to be. And that's uh, something that we continue to need the gospel for in our lives. We're going to open up to 2 Corinthians. Uh, so if you've got your Bible, open to 2 Corinthians with me. And we're going to camp out in chapter 4. Now, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church... Um, has really been, the second letter has been a real source of, of strength and nourishment to me over the last few years. Um, as we read it, you know, there's some real gold here. And obviously all of Scripture is gold, and in fact it says it's more than gold. It's worth more than gold. But, you know, during certain seasons of your life, the, the power and, and the sweetness of specific passages can come to life. And sometimes through hard times, sometimes through good times. But in this last years, Second Corinthians has really spoken to me. In this letter, we see how deeply rooted Paul's life and ministry are in the gospel. And he wants, we'll notice something. Paul wants the church to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't great in spite of the difficulties 
that they face and that he faced. It's not great in spite of the suffering and the challenges of life. Actually, the greatness of the gospel is put on display in the real world, in our real lives, through our difficulty, through suffering, through challenges. And so, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's, let's uh, look at verse 7 in chapter 4. Paul writes, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. I'm going to stop there for a second. I know we're just getting started, but let me, let me stop because we need to talk about it. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, what's the treasure that Paul's talking about? We need to back up a little bit and, and look at the context. What is this treasure? As we look at the preceding chapters, uh, maybe ironically, we find out that Paul's in the middle of, right here in chapter 4, in the middle of defending his ministry. Defending his ministry to the Corinthian church. Defending his ministry to the church that, that he planted just a few years before. I mean, talk about an awkward situation. He helped plant this church and now he's having to defend himself to it just a few years later. And that's what we find Paul doing here. And, and in fact, we can read in Acts 18 where Paul goes and, and spends some time in Corinth. And we read there that he spent 18 months in this city helping to plant this church. 18, I mean, when we compare it to some of the other cities where Paul traveled through, travel, Paul was traveling, as you guys know, all over the Mediterranean world and all over the Roman world. 18 months was a really long time. He usually didn't stop nearly that long in a city. I mean, the, the church in Corinth had the, the privilege of face-to-face time with Paul almost more than any other church in the New Testament. And yet here, just a few years later, Paul's having to defend his ministry to this very church. And, and his refrain, his... his his words are simply this. I didn't come preaching myself, but Christ. You see, there, there's a group in Corinth that would reject Paul. They would reject his leadership, his apostolic leadership. And they, they called Paul a lot of things. They called him an imposter. They said that, you know, he speaks a lot in, in his letters and he has strong language in his letters, but when he's face to face, he's just a weak and timid man. He's just an imposter. They said he was uh, trying to profit from the gospel. That he just wanted their money. He was just out for these things. And so Paul really spends time in this letter belaboring this point. He wants to make it absolutely clear that his ministry is marked by one single theme, the gospel. He wants to draw a clear line that connects his ministry to the gospel of Jesus Christ. His work is the work of the gospel, sharing that. In effect, Paul's telling the church, it's not about me, it's about the gospel, it's about Jesus and don't dare accept anything less. Don't dare accept any substitute. So here, as we jump into Paul's letter, and we jump into this fourth chapter, we find that Paul's defending himself. He's standing up for himself. He's standing up for Timothy, whose name is also attached to this letter. And really, he's standing up for anybody that's engaged in gospel ministry, that's trying to share the love of Jesus and the good news of his life and death and resurrection with the world. And so, we're going to back up just a couple of verses from where we started. So let's look at verse 5 and 6 to set a little context for where Paul's going back in verse 7. So, 2 Corinthians 4, 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For, the, for God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. 
any true gospel messenger isn't proclaiming himself, but Jesus. And so Paul's ministry was about pointing people to Jesus. That was so, so, so important to Paul, to point people to Jesus. Showing off Jesus as Lord and King, and himself merely as a servant to the church. Merely as Jesus' servant. Now why is it so important for Paul to point people to Jesus? I think his words at the end of this section are so powerful. Because the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus. The glory of God, the very glory of God, the unsearchable uh, power and majesty of God, the depth of His riches, the, the strength of His love, the very glory of God, the greatness of God, is revealed where? In the face of Jesus. Now, when Paul proclaims Jesus, then... When I preach Jesus, when you share the Jesus of the Gospels with your neighbors, with your co-workers, with your family, we're actually helping unfold the story of God's supremacy and love and grace and inexpressible value to those that we share it with. How do we know that God is good? We look at Jesus. How do we know that God is just? How do we know that God is caring? How do we know that God is Powerful, actually powerful to act in those situations where he says he cares about us? How, how do we know that God really does love us? We don't have to look any farther than the face of Jesus. And as we stare at the face of Jesus, which is a picture that's painted for us in the pages of Scripture, we're talking about the Jesus of Scripture, not the, the Jesus of culture, not Jesus the good moral philosopher, the good teacher, not Jesus, you know, meek and mild or our buddy Jesus, Talking about the Jesus of Scripture, when we stare into the face of the Jesus of this Jesus, we are gazing into the very glory of God. Let that sink in for a second, because this is the same glory that Moses begged to just peek at. This is the same glory that, that you know Peter tells us that the angels they long to gaze into the unfolding of the gospel, and yet we get to see it in the face of Jesus. And so this is the treasure that Paul's talking about in 4.7. The gospel, the treasures of jars of clay. The gospel puts Jesus' law-fulfilling life, his substitutionary death for our sins in our place, and his victorious resurrection on display for the world to see. It's the gospel that, that lets us look in to what God's redemptive work is doing. The, what his plan has been before creation, it says, that he prepared, uh, he was preparing for Christ to go to the cross. Before creation. And we get a glimpse into that. And, and that redemptive plan comes to its climax in Jesus. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And for us, if, for those who accept this Christ put their faith in Jesus, His righteousness, His perfect obedience is ours. The way that He pleased the Father when the Father looked at Him is the way the Father will look at us when our faith is in Jesus. His righteousness is ours. And now that's the story of the Gospel. That's the power of the Gospel. And this is the very story that unveils the glory of God. And we don't have time to get into all of it right now, but Paul even tells us in this letter that this is the story that God uses to transform us. As we look, as we set our eyes on Jesus, 
transforms our lives. So this, is the, this truth is Paul's treasure. And if we are in Christ, we have no greater treasure. Now, economically right now, it's no secret. Uh, Greece is in a pretty bad place. And it has no plans to turn around anything quickly. We've got to see some of that firsthand, uh, the difficulty that people are going through, uh, everything from government institutions to the guy on the street, businesses closed down and everything else. It really is a crisis. And most of us, we don't have a framework for understanding that. Unless we maybe lived through the Great Depression or something like that, we have the vocabulary for it, but we just can't get our minds around what's going on there. And it's bad, right? I'm not trying to make anything good about that. It's a bad thing, and yet... It can serve some good purposes. It can reveal some things to us. Because one of the things that I've had a chance to learn, and I think that Scripture reveals, and I've learned in my own experience, is that crises reveal our treasures. When you treasure something, it's a, it's a comment on its value, right? The kind of worth it has to you. And in our life, we all treasure all kinds of things. We treasure family. Some of us treasure money, security, comfort, safety, popularity, pleasure, you know, the list could go on and on and on. And some of those, some of the things on that list are good things and not necessarily bad things. But we also have to understand that all of those things are competing treasures. They're competing with themselves. They're competing with the gospel for our time, for our resources, for our passion, for our heart, for our mind. And so Christ is beckoning us. He's calling us to a greater and deeper treasure, the hope of the gospel. Scripture proclaims that the gospel outshines all the gold in the world. All the riches of God are ours in Christ Jesus. And this is a treasure that doesn't disappoint, that isn't going to, you know, like our retirement maybe is subject to the global markets. This isn't a treasure that, you know, forgets to call on your birthday as you get older or leaves you in the nursing home. That's not this kind of treasure. This is the kind of treasure that doesn't disappoint. Crises put our treasure on display. And whether it's an economic crisis, or maybe it's a family problem or a situation at your work, maybe it's an emotional breakdown, difficulty shows us where our treasures lie. If we treasure money above all else, if there's a financial collapse, our hearts will be bankrupt. If we treasure people above all else, then our hearts will be left alone Our hearts will be feeling empty when when someone disappoints us or someone doesn't live up to what we thought in that relationship. When a relationship breaks down, our hearts are empty. If our treasure is is pleasure above all else, you know, when the party's over, we're going to, like Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to feel the sting and the pain of vanity. But if we treasure Jesus Christ above all else, God turns crises on, its, on their heads. Rather than spending our lives trying to hide from the reality of poverty, hide from the reality of death, hide from the reality of loneliness or the fleeting nature of pleasure, instead of trying to hide from these, in the gospel, God gives us an opportunity and frees us to embrace our brokenness and, and our difficulty and, and even our suffering as a chance to experience His grace in our lives. And as a opportunity to put on display that grace, the glory of the gospel. Let's, uh, let's continue reading in verse 7 and let's unpack this a little bit. But we have this treasure in jars of clay 
or earthen vessels, the NASB says, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. When I was a kid, my greatest treasure, I think, I was reflecting on this a little bit, my greatest treasure growing up uh, was probably my baseball card collection. You know, as kids, we had uh, everybody in the neighborhood collected baseball cards. We had shoe boxes, them, five, six, seven, eight shoe boxes of baseball cards. And we would collect them, we would show them off, we would trade them. Uh, we could even use them as a currency. If I owed you $3 and I didn't have any cash, I'd give you, you know, a Wade Boggs or a Kirby Puckett or something. We treasured those baseball cards. And my favorite baseball players, my favorite cards, you know, Andre Dawson. No, no, no cups. Okay, there we go, a couple. The Andre Dawson's and, and my favorite cards, I would put in my lockbox. And I would take the key and I would go hide that somewhere else. And I'd put my lockbox in the closet. And I would actually, uh, I'm very clean now, of course, and very tidy. But I would dump all my dirty laundry on top of the lockbox. Because somehow I just knew that if burglars came into our house, the first thing they would go for was my $50 or whatever, which is now $2 baseball card collection. You know, so, but that's what we do with our treasures. We hide them. We get them out of reach. We put them somewhere safe and secure. Right? We, we put our money behind big iron or steel vaults in the bank. We password protect our smartphones and our computers. And yet here, Paul says that this treasure, the glory of God revealed in the face of Jesus, is not hidden away or kept safely out of reach. But it, it, its very presence with us is surrounded by brokenness and difficulty crisis suffering so remember Paul is talking back to his opponents in ministry here right Paul says he doesn't deny that he suffered he doesn't deny that he's had some bad things happen to him as he's been in ministry you know it hasn't exactly been Paul's best life now he's had some tough times he says here afflicted Perplexed, persecuted, struck down, always carrying around the death of Jesus because of his ministry. But these things, this is Paul's point, these things don't neglate, negate, negate, negate the glory of the treasure. Christian ministry and Christian life in general, you know, it isn't always smiles and, and good times and, hey, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Praise the Lord. It's not always good times. And in fact, it shouldn't always be safe and it shouldn't always be comfortable. And that's Paul's point. Frailty and difficulty and weakness don't negate the value of the treasure. It's as if Paul is saying, yeah, I'm, I'm broken, I'm imperfect, I'm frail, I've been persecuted, I'm imperfect, but that's just the condition that God is looking for. Because with less of me, there's more of Jesus Christ in my life. Clark, jars of clay are, are fragile, easily broken, 
That's exactly Paul's point here. He can't boast in his ministry. He can't boast in the, in the really amazing things that God is doing. Because it's not about him. It's not about his strength. Instead, the treasure here finds its source and its power in God himself. And that's who Paul can boast in. And the same goes for you and for, our, for me. Our brokenness doesn't negate the value and the power of the treasure. Instead, our brokenness shows that the power of the gospel doesn't come from the messenger, but from its source, God. Now, I'm not going to point out where exactly, but I, I think I hear a few moans somewhere around here. And I can almost imagine you saying, brokenness? Oof, that doesn't, that sounds a little bit messy and a little bit painful. Well, two points. First, I, at least in my experience, and, and you can come up to me afterwards and tell me if your experience has been different, but brokenness is just a reality of life. Difficulty and suffering are. And so we don't need to have this facade as if we always have it all together. You know, we don't have to play the part that we're no longer in need of God's grace and forgiveness and healing. In fact, that's exactly what the gospel teaches, that we are continually in need of those things. And so to put up a, a, a facade, to, to project this image that we have it all together and we don't have any brokenness, uh, you know, it doesn't do us any good because we're keeping ourselves uh, outside of God's grace that he's waiting to provide for us. and doesn't do those in our lives any good who maybe, as Paul says earlier in this letter, God has given you comfort to comfort others. Maybe God wants to comfort us in the midst of those trials, in the midst of that suffering, to be a comfort to someone else who will be going through it. Uh, but the second point is this. In the brokenness, there's, there's a promise. You know, later, a little bit later on in this letter, the 12th chapter, Paul talks about one of the messy areas in his life. Right? He talks about a thorn in his side. And Bible commentators or preachers, you know, some of them will interpret it differently. And I, I didn't ask Rick how he interprets this one. Some say it's a... <clears throat> It's a physical ailment. You know, maybe it's his failing blind, his failing eyesight. Maybe it's some other part of his body that's kind of giving out on him and it's, it's just causing him frustration in life and so he's asking God for healing. Some people think that maybe it was a, a, a character flaw or something moral that, that Paul was struggling through and he kept, you know, kept humbling in ministry and he kept asking God to overcome it and, and it didn't happen. I, I happen to think that, that maybe Paul here is re, referring to his opponents in Corinth and they were like a thorn in his side. But that's actually not the point. It doesn't matter too much. Because in any case, Paul prays three times, he tells us in that 12th chapter, three times he prays that God would deliver him from this pain, from the source of pain in his life. And God doesn't take the pain away. God doesn't take the source of pain away. But instead he leaves Paul with some of, I think, the sweetest, the most profound, the most uh, rich, the richest words uh, in the scriptures and for the Christian life. He says in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. In the life of the believer, pain and suffering and crisis don't get the last word. Grace does. Redemption does. Ultimately, God gets the last word. And I've walked this path at times over the last five years. And I think our context might be different, but you can probably relate to the pressure. Uh, you know, there are times in the last five years that, you know, this job just felt like it was too much. You know, leading our missionary team just felt like it was too much 
for me to bear or being far away from everything that was familiar just was too much. There are times that we were you know, close to depression. There are times that we were close uh, just not knowing it at our wit's end exactly what to do next. There's even some dark nights where I think we're close, you know, I was close to an emotional breakdown. I just didn't know what to do. And like I said, you've probably been there with me. A different context, uh, but the same kind of pressure. And it's a crisis, but it's also a window into our heart and into our faith and into our treasure. It's a crossroads. And we either in that moment learn to lean hard on Christ. We lean hard on Christ. We forsake all other saviors. We forsake any self-salvation projects. And we just throw ourselves fully on His grace and on His provision. Or we lean on our own understanding and we trust in our own ways. Uh, But the Bible is pretty clear about what that leads to. Uh, Proverbs 14.12 will tell us, There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end leads to death. So our brokenness screams out, Less of me, more of Christ. Our brokenness screams out less self-reliance and more grace. And, and even in Paul's list of calamities and suffering and difficulties back in chapter 4, we, we see the same theme. He's highlighting God's redemption. He says, I'm afflicted, but I'm not outside of God's protection. I'm perplexed, but I'm not beyond hope. I'm persecuted, but I haven't been forgotten. I'm struck down, but I'm not destroyed. In the midst of suffering, Paul sees God's grace. Paul's experiencing God's provision. And this is the theme of Paul's ministry. This is why he won't let his opponents say, Well, you're suffering, so obviously God isn't with you. Obviously God doesn't... uh, You know, obviously you're, you're doing something outside of the will of God. He says, No, in my suffering, God is working in my life and using this suffering... For others, we see in verse 11 and 12, God has redeemed Paul's suffering to make it an instrument of the gospel, a means of showing off the treasure of the gospel. God has used Paul's suffering to bring the message of salvation to more and more people in more and more places. And so I, a bit of a contrast, I take my treasure and I stick it in a lockbox and I cover it with dirty laundry uh, because... My treasure rots. My treasure is vulnerable to thieves. My treasure rusts. But God takes his treasure and he puts it on display, first of all. He puts it in the world. But not only that, he puts it on display in broken lives, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of crisis. To demonstrate, through this life-transforming treasure, through this gospel, that he is inexpressibly more powerful. He shows that he is inexpressibly more beautiful. That he is inexpressibly more valuable. Brokenness is a window that reveals the true source and power of the gospel. And it's not Paul. It's not me. It's not you. Let's look at our our final section here. We're going to look at verses 13 through 15. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to, what you have, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. 
For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul summarizes his ministry with this quote from Psalm 116. I believe, so I speak. Paul spoke in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of calamity, because he believed. He believed in the power of God and in the promise of God. We see that here as he says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus. He's putting his hope in God's power and God's promise and bring us with you into his presence. Paul is clinging to that hope. He believes God's promise. He believes God's power. And so he speaks through his suffering, through the persecution, through the crisis. I really love that next part, verse 15. He says, For it is all, all the suffering, all the persecution, all the calamity, all the crisis, it is all for your sake, he tells the church, as their, as their uh, distant pastor, as, as their previous church planter. You can hear his heart for them. It is for your sake. Even though he's being, uh, even though he has opponents in this city, who are trying to undermine his, his, his ministry. He said, it's for your sake that I go through these things. In the face of overwhelming calamity, Paul keeps on in ministry for the sake of the Corinthians, for the, for the sake of actual people. You know, it's really easy for us to pray for the lost in general or to pray for our neighbors in general. But when it comes to actual people, Actually, the people that live in our neighborhood or, or that we work with, that can be a lot tougher uh, to have that love. But Paul was compelled forward for their good, even for the good of those who were opposing him, that they might be reconciled with Christ. Now, let me ask you this then. Whom has God laid on your heart to compel you forward in your ministry? And of course, I'm talking about ministry. I'm not talking about what Rick does or what I do. I'm talking about how you get a chance to share and to show the difference that God has made in your life in Christ Jesus with those in your circle of influence at your work or in your neighborhood. Who has God put on your heart to propel you forward in ministry? Maybe your heart breaks over a friend who doesn't know Christ or over a neighbor. Maybe maybe you're zealous to share the good news of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus with those in need in this area or with somebody in your family. And if not, uh, forgive me maybe for my directness and for my boldness, but if not, if, your heart, if no one's on your heart, it's not God's fault. It's not that God hasn't cared enough about the lost around you to, to ask you to pray for them and ask you to seek them out. If not, repent and ask God for the grace to take that first step, to pray for. Ask Him, God, who do I pray for in my workplace? Who do I pray for in my neighborhood? Now, don't, don't, get, don't, get, don't worry. I'm not here to guilt you. I think, we'll find, I think we've all had enough experience in life to know that guilt doesn't change anything. But grace does. The gospel does. And we find that in this text, it is just saturated with grace. Because we're going to find a very liberating truth in Paul's experience here. Ministry, 
even the most simple thing from loving our neighbor that we may not love unless we're compelled by the love of Christ for Jesus' sake. Any kind of ministry is, is not about our ability. God isn't asking for some supernatural ability. He isn't asking for some kind of advanced ministry degree. He isn't asking for some kind of, you know, amazing testimony about how you came from such a rough background or something. He simply is asking for our availability and, and for us to extend His grace to those in our world. God is the one that changes hearts. God is the one that gives new life. And so the power of the gospel is found in Him, in the source, and not in the messenger, not in us. And certainly, God wants our best, but we can't be fooled into thinking that somehow now it rests on our shoulders. And the reality is that really, should be a really liberating truth because, you know what, now I don't have to try to manipulate for a response. I don't try to have to push and push and push until I push my neighbor away for them to know the love of Jesus. I don't have to force a decision. I don't have to hide, I don't have to hide my brokenness. I don't have to have it all together in order to seek to serve and love and speak the gospel to my neighbor. It's not our ability but our availability that God wants. And, and let me remind you, this is for all of us. The Great Commission is for every disciple of Jesus. Paul suffered. He suffered. He knowingly went through persecution and suffering and even belittlement at the hands of those in the church that he helped plant. He went through those things for the sake of the church, for the sake of the gospel. So who are we willing to suffer for? Who are, what are we willing to go through to share the gospel? What are we willing to go through even just to encourage the people in this room, our brothers and sisters, and when someone's having a hard time and no needs, know that they need prayer? Uh, you know, our lives are so busy. Make room. Make room. Even if that means suffering, even if that means giving up something else, maybe that means giving up a TV show uh, in order to spend some time praying for someone here that needs your prayers, and for someone who doesn't know Christ, who needs your prayers. And that's where it starts. Praying for the lost and for your neighbor, not in general, but by name, and then looking for a chance to love them and to serve them and to speak to them about the treasure that we have in the gospel. And Paul closes it by saying, It was all for your sake, so that... As grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. That was Paul's goal in ministry. That grace would extend to more and more people so that the, so the beauty and the worth and the riches and the greatness of God would be praised and glorified more and more and more. And you guys have been a part of that. You guys have been a part of grace extending to more and more. Obviously, I came to Christ in, in this church context. Uh, and you guys have been a part of sending me to Athens. And i got a number of stories we can share about God working there. But one person that really comes to my mind is an Afghan friend named Gafur. Gafur started following Christ about a year and a half ago. And he suffered persecution from it. He suffered rejection from his family, physical abuse. But he, he had encountered something, a sweetness and a richness and a love that he didn't know before. And so he went through that. 
And he began to serve. He began to volunteer in the ministry, anything, cleaning toilets, serving food, working with the kids. Eventually, that's where he landed because because of his dari, because of his language abilities, dari, he was used as a translator with the kids program. And now I'm just amazed to think that, that this church is a part, even now, of extending the gospel, even still in Athens, Greece, even still among Afghan children, as, as he has come to Christ, and, and now he's serving there. And, and every week he gets a chance to, to share the good news of Jesus with 20, 30, sometimes 50 little kids who have literally never heard it before, who have never heard about God's love, who have never heard about God's provision in Jesus Christ. And so grace is extending to more and more and more. And let me encourage you as we close to continue in that faithful service that this church has. By the faithfulness of this church, the gospel is extending to more and more and more. To more Gafors, to more Ahmeds, to more Amins and Mohammeds in Athens, but also to more and more and more of your neighbors, I pray, of the people that you work with, that we would continue to see what God is doing through this place to extend his grace to more and more and more so that he would be praised and his greatness seen and glorified by more and more and more. And that's why we do this. It's for God's glory, for the good of those we serve, and for our joy in Christ Jesus. Thanks, guys.